Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Please support our independent journalism at democracynow.org. That's democracynow.org. Your donation will be matched dollar for dollar. Thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! The magnitude of hostilities between Israel and Hamas and the scope of death and destruction in Gaza have been unprecedented and unbearable to witness. Israel's killed at least 46 Palestinians in the Jabalia refugee camp in Gaza. But hope is growing for a new ceasefire. The head of Hamas's political wing is in Egypt for talks as the U.N. Security Council prepares to vote on a new Gaza resolution. We'll speak to Columbia University professor Rashid Khalidi, author of The Hundred Years' War on Palestine. Then we look at how a group of Palestinian Christians are trapped in the Holy Family Church in Gaza, where a mother and daughter, parishioners, were just shot dead this weekend by an Israeli sniper. The people in this church, Mr. Speaker, are civilians. They have nothing to do with Hamas. They are nuns, orphans, disabled people. They are a small Christian community, and they know everyone. As the Pope has said, and my family can confirm, it is categorically untrue to say Hamas are operating from there. And then to Texas, where Republican Governor Greg Abbott signed one of the nation's most extreme anti-immigrant bills, empowering local police to arrest anyone they suspect of entering the United States without authorization. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Hamas leader Ismail Khania is in Egypt to discuss a possible new truce. The Wall Street Journal reports Hamas is also in discussion with Palestinian rivals Fatah about a possible joint scenario for ruling Gaza and the West Bank after the war. On Tuesday, Israeli President Isaac Herzog said the country is open to a new temporary truce to secure the release of more hostages. For now, Israel's bloody assault continues with a major attack reported just as we went to broadcast on Rafah, near the Kuwaiti hospital. On Tuesday, more strikes in Rafah killed at least 20 people. A Palestinian woman lost her two grandchildren in the attack. At 2.30 in the morning, we woke up as the house was falling on our heads. I did not wake up when the young men came to pull us out of the rubble. I have two grandchildren who were martyred. Princess Aisha is two weeks old. Her name was not recorded in the texts. She does not have a birth certificate, meaning her identity has been unknown since the day she was born. She does not have it, a birth certificate, and her brother was two years old. Elsewhere, the health ministry says dozens were killed in the Jabalia refugee camp in northern Gaza. Many others remain trapped under the rubble of destroyed buildings. 
The Foreign Press Association in Jerusalem filed a petition with the Israeli Supreme Court to request immediate access for foreign media to enter the Gaza Strip. The Israeli military has restricted much of the territory to foreign outlets and required journalists embed with its forces and receive Israeli approval on their reporting. The Committee to Protect Journalists says at least 68 media workers have been killed since October 7th. Meanwhile, a U.N. Security Council vote on a Gaza resolution that would push to halt fighting was postponed for a second time and rescheduled for today. The delay comes amidst reported disagreements within the Biden administration, which has been blocking or trying to water down any U.N. statements. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin announced a 10-nation coalition to protect trading interests in the Red Sea after a series of attacks by Yemen's Houthi rebels. The coalition includes Bahrain, Canada, France, Italy, the U.K., and the Seychelles. Houthi officials have said their drone and missile attacks will continue as long as Gaza suffers from Israel's unrelenting assault. In Washington, D.C., dozens of protesters were arrested inside the U.S. Capitol Tuesday in a peaceful action demanding an immediate ceasefire in Gaza and an end to U.S. military aid to Israel. Over 80 organizers made up of a coalition of Jewish, Muslim, Palestinian labor, racial justice and immigrant rights leaders gathered in the Capitol Rotunda chanting and holding white banners, including one that read, The People Choose Life ceasefire now. Among those arrested at Tuesday's rally is Palestinian-American community organizer Linda Sarsour. In a historic decision, the Colorado Supreme Court ruled Donald Trump does not qualify for the state's 2024 presidential primary ballot, citing his role in the January 6, 2021 Capitol insurrection. In a 4-3 to ruling, the Colorado justices found Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution applies to Trump, reversing a lower court's decision. Last month, the judge agreed that Trump had engaged in an insurrection, but said presidents are not subject to the Constitution's insurrection clause, which was originally designed to prevent Civil War Confederates from returning to government. Trump has vowed to appeal as he used the news to launch a fresh fundraising request. The case could end up at the U.S. Supreme Court and set a major precedent for all other states. In related news, a judge has ordered Pennsylvania Congressmember Scott Perry to turn over some 1,700 cell phone records as part of the federal January 6 probe. The Senate on Tuesday confirmed nearly a dozen nominations for senior military positions, putting an end to Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville's blockade of Pentagon promotions. Tuberville had unsuccessfully sought to force a change on the military's policy of paying for abortion-related travel for employees. The Senate, however, decided it will not vote on a new funding package for Ukraine until next year. Congress has stalled on the issue in part over Republican demands any aid be tied to harsh new immigration restrictions. New air attacks hit Kyiv and other regions of Ukraine overnight, though no casualties are reported. Meanwhile, the U.N. Tuesday condemned Russian violations of international law and war crimes in occupied areas of Ukraine, including 142 documented cases of civilian executions. This is U.N. Human Rights Chief Volkertek. 
On occupied territory, we have documented widespread torture and ill-treatment of detainees, including sexual violence, as well as large numbers of forced disappearances. In addition, there has been extensive failure by the Russian Federation to take adequate measures to protect civilians and protected civilian objects against the effects of their attacks. Sudan's rapid support forces have seized control of Wadmadani, the nation's second largest city, which was once a refuge for hundreds of thousands of people escaping violence in the capital Khartoum. Thousands have fled their homes on buses and on foot as fighting between the Sudanese army and the RSF intensified in Wadmadani. The RSF's takeover of the city has marked a new turn in Sudan's eight-month conflict that broke out in April. The UN's warned hunger in Sudan's conflict zones is headed toward famine-like conditions, while nearly seven million people have been internally displaced or forced to flee Sudan. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, nationwide polls for president and local leaders have opened after a three-hour delay. In eastern DRC, voters and observers complained of poorly organized election sites and missing names from voting rolls. There were quite a few people who didn't end up on the list. We, the observers, can see that the organization was not good in this respect. People are wondering how they are going to vote if they can't find their way around. Yet they also have the right to do their duty to vote. Ongoing violence in the war-torn east of the DRC has displaced millions and prevented an estimated one and a half million people from registering to vote. Incumbent President Felix Shisekedi is seeking a second five-year term, is running in a packed field of nearly 20 hopefuls. Other candidates include Moise Katumbi, a former governor and mining magnate, former oil executive Martin Fayulu, and Nobel Peace Prize winner Dr. Dennis Mukwege. Mukwege's Ponzi Hospital has treated tens of thousands of survivors of sexual violence from armed groups. The DRC is home to massive reserves of natural resources, including cobalt, which is used to make lithium batteries for cell phones and other electronic devices. Lithium is considered essential amidst the transition away from fossil fuels. But Congolese people have not benefited from the prize mineral. Insecurity, poverty, corruption and the management of resources are key issues in the election. In related news, the U.N. Security Council voted unanimously Tuesday to gradually phase out its 14,000 peacekeeping troops in the DRC. Congolese authorities and local communities have called for their withdrawal, saying the international force failed to prevent escalating violence. Bolivia has signed a multi-million dollar deal with a Russian firm to build a pilot lithium plant that would produce parts for electric vehicles. This is Bolivian President Luis Arce. We want our Bolivian lithium company, Bolivian Lithium Deposits, YLB, to compete with foreign technology and companies that have come to Bolivia to work with our lithium. We want that competition because we are the world's top lithium reserve. Bolivia has the largest lithium deposits in the world, drawing interest from foreign powers. Earlier this year, Bolivia's state company, YLB, also signed an agreement with China. But many have opposed lithium exploitation over fears it could lead to the displacement and impoverishment of indigenous communities in the Andes. Environmentalists have also warned lithium extraction places massive demands on fresh water supplies. 
Back in the United States, New York Governor Kathy Hochul signed a bill creating a commission to consider reparations for black New Yorkers who've endured the ongoing legacy of slavery and racism. It's the third state to launch such a task force after California and Illinois. Among other things, the commission will investigate housing discrimination, policing and incarceration and income inequality. A recent report by the New York City Comptroller's Office found white households in the state have a median net worth almost 15 times higher than black households. The commission could recommend monetary or other forms of compensation through New York would not be compelled, though New York would not be compelled to abide by these. Reverend Al Sharpton spoke at Tuesday's signing ceremony. I do not know where the commission will go, but I know that history is made because there is a commission and there is a recognition. And sometimes, even if you can't take away the pain and the scar, we gain a lot by being recognized that is due to be repaired. And in Germany, acclaimed Russian-American writer Masha Gessen received the prestigious Hannah Arendt Prize on Saturday in an extremely scaled-down ceremony. The event was supposed to take place last week in Bremen City Hall, but award sponsors and the city of Bremen withdrew after Gessen compared Gaza to the Warsaw Ghetto in a recent New Yorker article. Gessen, who is Jewish and the descendant of Holocaust's victims, spoke earlier this week at another event hosted by the prize organizers. The biggest difference between Gaza and the Jewish ghettos in Nazi-occupied Europe is that Gazans, many Gazans, most Gazans, are still alive and the world still has an opportunity to do something about it. You can see our recent interview with Masha Gessen in Bremen at democracynow.org. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. The head of Hamas's political wing, Ismail Haniyeh, has arrived in Cairo, Egypt, for talks as hopes grow that a new deal could be reached for a ceasefire and the release of more hostages. Israel's bombardment of Gaza began 75 days ago on October 7th, just hours after Hamas's attack on Israel. Health authorities in Gaza say at least 19,600 Palestinians have been killed so far. Thousands are feared to be still trapped under the rubble. Just before this broadcast, Israel struck residential buildings in the southern city of Raha, near the Kuwaiti Special Hospital. A reporter from Al Jazeera, Hani Mahmoud, was on the air when the attack occurred. As we're, we're getting into... Oh my God, did you hear that? Yes, yes, Oh my God. That's the hospital, that's the hospital. That's the hospital. Oh my God. Are you guys hearing that? Yes, we are, we are hearing that, Henny. Are you, are you okay? Are you, are you in a safe place to, to continue to talk to us? 
Why, why, Hani Mahmoud asks the Al Jazeera reporter. Al Jazeera reports the Israeli attack destroyed a large mosque in Rafah, as well as two residential homes. Israeli drones had been seen in the sky just before the strikes. Earlier, an Israeli attack on the Jabalia refugee camp killed at least 46 Palestinians and wounded dozens. The United Nations Security Council is expected to vote on a new Gaza resolution today. The vote was postponed Tuesday after the United States voiced opposition to a draft of the resolution. On December 8th, the United States vetoed a U.N. Security Council resolution calling for ceasefire. This all comes as tension is growing in the Red Sea. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has announced the U.S. will lead a new military task force to protect ships in the Red Sea following a number of attacks by Houthi forces from Yemen. We're joined now by Rashid Khalidi, the Edward Said Professor of Modern Arab Studies at Columbia University here in New York. He's the author of several books, including his latest, The Hundred Years' War on Palestine. His recent opinion piece for the Los Angeles Times is headlined, How the U.S. Has Fueled Israel's Decades-Long War on Palestinians. Uh, Professor Halliday, I'm wondering if you can start off by just talking about the situation overall in Gaza. Your family is from the West Bank. You also have family in Gaza. And I want to just point out that I particularly talked about, named the journalist with Al Jazeera, um, Hani Mahmoud, because it has been so horrifying to only name journalists after they have been killed, and so many scores of them have died. Hani Mahmoud's bravery is astounding as he wa we watch him through um, the uh, Gaza Strip uh, and today in the midst of this attack. Take it from there, Professor Halliday. Well, he's very fortunate that he's still alive. Uh, over 90 journalists have been killed. Um, in Gaza since in, in, we're now in the 11th week of this war um, 283 healthcare workers have been killed 135 United Nations workers have been killed it's the highest death toll the United Nations has ever suffered in its entire history um, and that's just a tip of the iceberg uh, you, you cited a number of uh, 20,000 people earlier on uh, have, apparently having been killed probably the number is much higher because there are so many thousands of people buried under the rubble or missing. And we will probably not know the, the, the final death toll uh, until many, many months from now when, when operations to, to remove the ruins of the buildings that have been destroyed are completed. Um, the situation in Gaza is unspeakable. Um, what we hear from my niece's family there is, I, I, I can't describe it. It's, it's beyond belief. People are scrambling for the basic necessities of life and are sometimes not finding them. Uh, firewood to heat uh, water and, and cook. Um, enough water for everybody to have sufficient water to drink, let alone wash. Um, I, I could go on. It, it, is, it is unspeakable. It is uh, intolerable. And the, the tragic thing about it is that this is clearly intended. Um, neither our government nor the Israeli government recognize the fact that what is happening there is causing this immiseration of over two million people. Um, and, and this could easily be stopped um, and should be stopped. Um, I, I, can't, I can't 
I can't understand how uh, this country can allow this to continue. Um, the idea that going after Hamas entails the destruction of more than half of the housing in Gaza, the idea that going after Hamas entails the wounding of 50,000 people and the killing of 20,000, it's just, it, it's incomprehensible to me um, that our governments can be so callous and can be so determined uh, not to separate itself from Israel as far as this basic, the basic nature of this war, which is really directed against the people of Gaza. Over two million people have been forced to leave their homes. This is the largest displacement in Palestinian history. Uh, the killing of 20,000 people, almost half of which are, of whom are children, um, is unprecedented in Palestinian history. So we are talking about traumatic events that are going to scar generations to come. And this doesn't seem to be a matter of concern to our government, let alone the government of Israel. Well, well Professor Halliday, uh We've seen massive, unprecedented demonstrations uh, in support of the Palestinians throughout the world. Uh, um, the majority of governments in the General Assembly, overwhelming majority, have called for a ceasefire. Yet the Security Council uh, continues to be a, a roadblock, especially the United States. Can you talk about what this is doing to the legitimacy of the U.N. itself? Well, I think it's harming the United, United Nations, but I think it's also harming the uh, legitimacy of the United States position. Um, it's not the Security Council that's blocking action. It's the U.S. government that's blocking action. Uh, there was one abstention, 13 votes in favor last time that a ceasefire resolution was before the Security Council. And they spent three days trying to get a resolution which involves not a ceasefire, but a humanitarian pause. And the United States has been obstructing that, uh, as I've said, for three days. So I think this is going to harm not just the United Nations, because it's manifestly helpless in the face of this catastrophe. It's harming the United States. Um, there is overwhelming support the world over for ending this. There is overwhelming support, sympathy the world over for the Palestinians. There is, I, would, I think the polls show, very strong support even in the United States for uh, ending this war and at the very least for stopping um, what's going on so that humanitarian aid can get in. And the administration is clearly impervious uh, to all of this. Um, and, and I think our, the mainstream media, frankly, are complicit in this. Uh, nobody knows that four major trade unions have come out for a ceasefire. The United Auto Workers, the nurses, the electricians, uh, and the postal workers. Uh, the, that has the, the New York Times, for example, has not deigned to mention that. Well, that's a large chunk of labor. Um, we're talking about a great deal of anger and opposition to the Biden administration's policy among wide swaths of the American people. And they just plow on as if uh, none of this mattered. I, 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 I find it very hard to explain, frankly. I wanted to ask you about there have been numerous media reports of attacks on U.S. troops in Syria and Iraq that that are threatening to expand uh, the conflict beyond just uh, the occupied territories in Gaza. But what the heck are U.S. troops still doing in those two countries? Has has Congress authorized their presence there? Do the governments of those countries even want them there? Well, the government of Syria, the dictatorship of Bashar al-Assad, certainly doesn't want them there. Um, and the pretext for their being in Syria is against uh, the Islamic State. 
Um, I don't think there is any authorization for their being there. The troops that are the troops that are in Iraq are supposedly engaged in training the Iraqi army, but there's a great deal of opposition in Iraq, even though the Iraqi government has has accepted their presence there. There's a great deal of opposition in the Iraqi parliament to the presence of U.S. forces in Iraq, and I think what we're seeing are, are, are attacks, uh, whether from Yemen on shipping or or firing missiles at Israel, or attacks on U.S. troops in Iraq or in Syria, which are a response to what Israel is doing uh, in Gaza. And the, the same is true, obviously, of the fighting that's going on between Hezbollah and the Israeli army uh, along Israel's northern frontiers. And the fear is that this will, that this could possibly expand, that this could become a regional war. Um, so far, we're now in the 11th week of this war, since the 7th of October. And so far, that fear has been, or that, that possibility has been contained. But it is, it is, always, uh, it is always there. And it would lead to, I think, possibly terrible consequences were the war to expand beyond its already quite horrific level in Gaza. And were that to spark uh, uh, a further uh, increase of fighting along the Lebanese border uh, in Syria, Iraq uh, or, or out of Yemen. Can you talk about um, also what's happening in the Red Sea? You have a dozen corporations who say they won't ship their goods through the Red Sea. You have U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin announcing a 10-nation coalition to protect trading interests there, including Bahrain, Canada, France, Italy, the U.K., the Seychelles, Houthi officials saying that their drone and missile attacks will continue as long as Israel bombards Gaza. There is enormous anger in the Arab world about what is happening in Gaza. Um, things that Americans uh, don't see or don't see enough of the scenes of what is actually happening in Gaza are being watched all over the Arab world and across much of the world. And the anger that people have and their frustration at the unwillingness of their governments to do more to try and stop this um, is palpable. Uh, in, in Saudi Arabia, people can't demonstrate. In some countries, they can demonstrate. But you talk to anybody in any of these countries, and public opinion is boiling. Uh, and the, the passivity of Arab governments in the face of this, their unwillingness to actually take action, um, I think is, is contrasts with Hezbollah, uh, militias in Iraq and Syria, and the Houthis in Yemen, uh, actually engaging uh, militarily. Uh, in, in in doing something, um, and I, I I think that I think it is really time for countries that want to have a ceasefire to begin to group together, whether Arab countries or European countries or countries in the global south, to group together and say there will be X Y Z sanctions if this doesn't stop. At the very least, if sufficient humanitarian aid, if sufficient field hospitals, if sufficient water and food and so forth are not allowed into Gaza, this and this and this will be done to Israel, which is responsible. Um, uh, and and I, think that, I think that there are countries that could do this, uh, including Arab countries. Uh, Jordan has recalled its ambassador. Well, that, that's not going to affect Israel very much. But uh, stopping the transportation of food uh, from the Gulf uh, to Israel, apparently the Emiratis are shipping food to Israel, would actually affect Israel. Uh, doing things that uh, threaten uh, 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 diplomatic relations uh, would, would have an impact. 
Now, that, that in and of itself is not enough, but I think a lot more has to be done. The United Nations, as, as we can see, is paralyzed by the UN veto, by the US, I should say, veto. Uh, the General Assembly has done what it could, 153 to 10. You can't have a more lopsided vote than that. I think more has to be done to bring home to people in Washington in particular that this is unacceptable and actually unsustainable, that the, the possibility of this overflowing into a regional conflagration, which is always there, is only part of the damage that is being done. Whole generations are being brought up angry at the United States, enraged at Israel, uh, all over the region. And uh, Israel is going to have to deal with this for decades to come. The United States is going to have to deal with this for decades to come. We are seen as complicit. These are American uh, artillery shells, American bombs, American rockets, American planes, American helicopters, American artillery that are being used in this war. Uh, 20,000 people have, killed, have been killed mainly with American weapons, mostly civilians in Gaza. And uh, people are not going to forget that, uh, unfortunately. Uh, and I don't see a sense of the impact of this uh, in Washington. I don't, I don't, I don't, I really think they live in some kind of a, of a bubble, in some kind of a vacuum, in some kind of a fact-free space where they don't seem to understand the impact of all of this. They, they, what they're thinking and why they're, why they're thinking that is actually beyond me, as I've said. I want to ask you, uh, Rashid Khalidi, about the Hamas leader, uh, Ismail Haniya, in Egypt to discuss a possible new truce. The Wall Street Journal reporting Hamas is also in discussions with uh, Palestinian rivals like Fatah about a possible joint scenario for ruling the West Bank and Gaza afterwards. Of course, Netanyahu is completely against this. If you can talk about the discussion of the hostage negotiations, um, where we've seen reports of uh, um, <clears throat> possibly uh, Marwan Barghouti, and if you can explain his significance being released for um, a number of Israeli soldiers released. Talk about all of this that's going on right now so people can understand what's next. Well, that's a big, that's a big, <laughs> that's, that's a big number. That's a large number of questions. I think the first thing, uh, the, the, the hostage issue, um, there has been a, a, a huge problem around the, the hostages because what uh, Hamas has been demanding up until now is essentially an all-for-all all exchange. All of the prisoners and hostages, I mean, there's some, are, some, some of the hostages are military and many of them are civilians. And what they've been saying, apparently, from what we can tell from press reports, is that if you want all of the hostages, you're going to have to release all of the prisoners. And that is, that is, that is one possibility, uh, I think unlikely. And one of the prisoners who could therefore be released is Marwan Barhouti, who's a senior Fatah leader who was convicted of multiple uh, murders uh, by an Israeli military court that he never recognized. Um, and who uh, uh, might well be a candidate for president who could win a majority of, of Palestinian votes. Um, I think the, the other issue, and, and there are other possibilities as far as hostage, hostages are concerned. For example, release of all the civilian hostages in exchange for a certain number of prisoners. And I, I have no idea where that negotiation is going. Um, some Israeli press reports indicate that the Israeli government is, is, is talking about progress when there hasn't actually been progress in order to decrease the pressure of hostage families 
who are demanding the release of, of Palestinian prisoners in order to get their, their loved ones home. Um, I think the, the broader question— Especially is, after Israel killed three of, um, of the hostages from Israel. Accidentally, exactly, yes. Uh, and uh, many others apparently have been killed in the bombing, and, and released hostages have said, we were terrified for our lives because of the bombing that was going on. Um, I, I've read accounts in the Israeli press from released hostages who, who've talked about how, how uh, the kind of danger that they were in, not so much from their captors as from the possibility that they would be killed by the Israeli, by the Israeli bombardments. Um, the other aspect of this is the political uh, aspect. Uh, Hamas, uh, Hamas has a position in Palestinian politics that is not going to be eradicated, no matter what Israel does in Gaza. If Israel entirely defeats Hamas's entire military uh, network of infrastructure, if it kills every single fighter, these are, of course, probably unrealistic, but even assuming that they can do that, Hamas continues as a political movement. Hamas continues to have su support among Palestinians, not majority support, according to almost every poll I've ever seen, but a certain amount of support. If there, when and if the Palestinians manage to put together a government, and you know, everybody else is gonna try and do it for them. The United States is gonna try and impose its uh, 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 intentions on them. The Israeli government will undoubtedly try and do the same, and the Europeans, in their colonial way, will probably try and do the same, telling the Palestinians what's good for them and telling them who they can have and not have in their government. But when and if the Palestinians can get their own act together and form some kind of, for example, reformed PLO, um, there is no way to exclude Hamas from that. This idea that Hamas, because of what it did on October 7th, is completely excluded from Palestinian governance is a fantasy, an Israeli-American-European fantasy. Um, you do not negotiate with the people who have already agreed to your terms. You couldn't do that in Ireland. You had to bring the IRA in. You couldn't do that in South Africa. You had to bring the ANC in. You couldn't do that in Algeria. You had to bring the FLN in. These are groups that had carried out horrific attacks, in many cases on civilians. These are groups that were described by the colonial power in South Africa, in Algeria, in Ireland as terrorists or bandits, or they had different terms at different times. But the only people you really need to negotiate with are the people with the guns, after all. And in, until that fact gets through the thick skulls of people in Washington and in Paris and London, we're not going anywhere. They can pick Quislings, they can pick technocrats, they can select the Palestinians who are acceptable to them, who meet whatever test, who get down on their knees and condemn Hamas or whatever, whatever litmus test is imposed. And those people will represent nobody, will have no credibility, will have no legitimacy, and will have no control over the situation. And so you are, you are looking barring an acceptance that you have to eventually deal with your real enemies, you are looking at a situation of unending Israeli occupation of the Gaza Strip, direct or indirect. You were looking at a situation which implies unending resistance to that occupation. How many people can they kill? If Israel claims that there are 25 or 30,000 uh, militants, uh, armed militants in Hamas, how many of them can they kill? 10, 12, 11, 15? There will eventually be others. People, people who are still there. And that means that a, an imposed solution with Israel continuing to operate in the Gaza Strip, which it has said it intends to do, will provoke continued resistance. So nothing will be solved. And the reconstruction and the end of the misery of the people of Gaza can't take place until those kinds of changes from occupation to some kind of Palestinian governance 
uh, takes place. And I don't see, uh, you read the Washington Post, uh, David Ignatius, the idea that Arab countries are going to go in and do Israel and the United States is dirty work for them is a fantasy. The Emiratis and the Saudis and the Egyptians and the Jordanians will not go in and govern on behalf of Israel. It is not going to happen. Uh, there has to be Palestinian governments of Palestinian territories. And that is going to have to, one way or another, involve all the groups within the Palestinian political spectrum. The Palestinians have been divided by their own, you know, but for reasons that have to do with Palestinian dysfunction, but they've also been divided by the divide and rule policies of the United States, Israel, and the Europeans. As long as that continues, this festering sore will continue, and there will be violence, and it will not only be violence caused by hard men in Hamas, it will be violence caused by the horrors visited on the Palestinians by 56 years of occupation, by 75 years of colonialism, and the fact that people inevitably necessarily resist occupation. Um, you have to, they, they have to come to terms sooner or later with the fact in Washington and in Israel with the fact that Palestinian governance is a matter to be decided by Palestinians. Um, and that is simply not in the mindset if you read what comes out of Washington or what comes out of Israel, of, of our, our government or Israeli government or many European governments. Uh, Professor, we only have a, a, a couple of minutes left, but I wanted to ask you, uh, you said that there's an unquestionable connection of Judaism and the Jewish people to the Holy Land, and yet that Israel, the Israeli state, is a settler colonial project. And in your L.A. Times piece recently, you called it the assault on Gaza, the last colonial war of the modern age. Could you elaborate? Right. Sure. Um, I mean, this goes back to the nature of Zionism. Zionism is a, a, a national project which distinguishes it from every other settler colonial movement, project. But at the same time, it was a self-identified colonial project. I mean, the, the Jewish colonization agency, the Palestinian Jewish colonization agency, is the term that that, that organization, which existed until 1958, applied to itself. Um, that was something that was accepted by early Zionist leaders. They, they, they argued they had a claim to the Holy Land. There's a connection of the Jewish people to the, to the land of Israel. All of this is true, that, that, that there is such an attachment and such a connection. But Zionism is a European colonial project backed by imperialism, British imperialism, and which intended to replace an indigenous population with a Jewish population. As, as Zev Jabotinsky said, we want to transform Palestine into the land of Israel. And that meant a demographic transformation. And that meant a dispossession of the population and theft of their land, as happens in every settler colonial uh, scenario. So Israel is both the result of a national project, Zionism, and the result of a settler colonial project. There's no, there's no, you can walk and chew gum at the same time. There's actually no contradiction between it. And it's unique in that it was not just an extension of a mother country's population and sovereignty. It had its own independent ambitions to establish a Jewish state, not a British state. It came in under the protection of Britain, but it had its own aims, separate, independent aims. So it's a unique, it's a unique uh, phenomenon in, in, in the modern world. And it learned everything it did from the British. The Israeli army's earliest leaders were trained by British colonial counterinsurgency specialists to blow up houses over the heads of, of their residents, to shoot prisoners, to attack villages at night. This is British counterinsurgency, uh, uh, which, which was transmitted to uh, Israeli members of the Palmach and the Haganah 
in the 1930s in order to have in order for them to help the British fight the Palestinians. And that those are the founders of the Israeli army. Moshe Dayan was trained by British counterinsurgency specialists. Yigal Alon, uh, Yitzhak Sadeh, or many of the leading uh, figures in what became the Israeli army have that training. And Israel is using laws left over. The, the, the 1945 defense emergency regulations under which people are put in administrative detention, no indictment, no trial, no conviction, nothing. They're just put in jail and kept there. That's a British 1945 emergency regulation. That's a typical colonial instrument. So this is a colonial war uh, fought in order to maintain the supremacy of this group, which has taken the country over at the expense of the indigenous, popula- indigenous Palestinian population. Um, the connection of the Jewish people to the land of Israel is, in my view, incontrovertible. Um, but that in and of itself doesn't justify the colonial methods uh, that have been used in the establishment and the maintenance of Israel's supremacy over now the entirety of Palestine from the river to the sea. Rashid Khalidi, uh, Edward Sayed, professor of modern Arab studies at Columbia University, author of a number of books, including The Hundred Years' War on Palestine. We'll link to your opinion piece for the L.A. Times, headlined how the U.S. has fueled Israel's decades-long war on Palestinians. Coming up, we look at how a group of Palestinian Christians are trapped in the Holy Family Church in Gaza, where a mother and daughter were shot dead this weekend by an Israeli sniper. Stay with us. While sitting on a crowded southbound train, it happened just the other day. I could have sworn that I was rolling back as the train beside me slowly pulled away. Well, my whole life long, it seems I've been on that track With everybody rolling on and me just slipping back And they don't wave goodbye and they don't look back So I guess I've gotta keep on keeping on Some people always Keep on keeping on by Len Chandler, the song by the folk singer who passed away this year, was later quoted in a speech by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. It is terrorism. Those were the words of Pope Francis after an Israeli sniper shot dead two Christian women an elderly woman and her adult daughter who tried to save her at a Catholic church in Gaza City on Sunday. The shooting took place at the Holy Family Latin Parish, where scores of Palestinian Christians have been trapped with little food or water. The Pope condemned the shooting in remarks Sunday. And let us not forget our brothers and sisters suffering from war in Ukraine, Palestine, Israel, and other conflict zones. May the approach of Christmas strengthen our commitment to open paths of peace. I continue to receive from Gaza very serious and painful news. Unarmed civilians are being bombed and shot at. And this has even happened inside the Holy Family Parish compound, where there are no terrorists, but families, children, and sick people with disabilities, and nuns. A mother and her daughter, Miss Nahida Khalil Antan, and her daughter Samar Kamal Antan. 
Canton, were killed and others wounded by the snipers as they went to the bathroom. The house of Mother Teresa's nuns was damaged. Their generator hit. Some say it's terrorism. It's war. Yes, it's war. It's terrorism. That is why scripture says that God stops war, breaks bows, and breaks spears. Let us pray to the Lord for peace. That was the Pope this Sunday. British MP Leila Moran has also denounced Israel's attacks on the Gaza City Catholic Church. Some of her relatives are trapped inside. I've spoken before in this house about my extended family who are in the Holy Family Parish Church in Zaytun in Gaza. And the situation has been desperate for weeks, but now it's descending. There are tanks outside the gates, there are soldiers and snipers pointing into the complex, shooting at anyone who ventures out. And the convent was bombed. On Saturday, two women were shot. They were simply trying to get to the toilet. There is no electricity, there is no clean water, and the update that I had last night was that they're down to their last can of corn. I'm told, after pressure, that food has been delivered, but they've not seen it. And when this began a week ago, the IDF soldiers ordered these civilians to evacuate against their will. Can the government confirm that it sees the forcible displacement of civilians as unacceptable? The people in this church, Mr. Speaker, are civilians. They have nothing to do with Hamas. They are nuns, orphans, disabled people. They are a small Christian community, and they know everyone. As the Pope has said, and my family can confirm, it is categorically untrue to say Hamas are operating from there. This situation has been condemned by many. Will this government do so? We're joined now by Philip Farah. He is a co-founder of the Palestinian Christian Alliance for Peace, has relatives sheltering in the Church of St. Porphyrius in Gaza City, which has also come under attack. Last month, one of his relatives, Elham Farah, who is a beloved 84-year-old music teacher, daughter of a famed Palestinian poet, was killed by an Israeli sniper outside the homely fa- the Holy Family Church, where the mother and daughter were killed on Sunday by an Israeli sniper. Philip Farah, can you describe what is happening there right now and talk about this small Palestinian Christian community under siege? How is this happening? Thank you, Amy. Thank you, Democracy Now!, Yes, um, three of my grandparents are from um, Gaza. I was raised uh, in uh, Jerusalem, but we had very strong connections to Gaza. Um, there, ha- there were many, many Palestinian uh, Christian families in Gaza. It was a thriving uh, community. Uh, our relatives, the Madbaks, the Tarazis, the Sabas, the uh, Jahshan, uh, Farah, including Farah and Sayers, uh, were a thriving community that lived in peace with their Muslim neighbor, neighbors. And even there were Jewish neighbors. Uh, back then, uh, one of my uh, g- grand um, uncles was a grains merchant, and some of his best friends were Jewish grains merchants as well. Uh, they were in the business of exporting barley, actually, uh, to um, the United Kingdom for um, upgrading uh, um, beer uh, in uh, breweries in the UK. 
Um, over the years, that uh, community has dwindled uh, to a tiny minority because of the horrible conditions uh, that Israel has imposed on uh, Gaza. Uh, especially uh, back in 2013, the number was 3,000. Far, far smaller than it was, say, at the turn of the century. Uh, now it's only barely a thousand people, and they're all sheltering in St. Prophyrius, the Orthodox Church. That is the church where my father, uncles and aunts, and members of my extended family were baptized. Um, so many were sheltering in St. Prophyrius. I think still some are. Uh, four of my Tarazi relatives were killed there. Um, Ilham actually was sheltering at St. Prophyrius, until uh, the bombing that killed, the Israeli bombing that killed 18 Christians in that church. And then she moved to the Holy Cross, uh, the Holy Family uh, Church. Um, she was a delightful 84-year-old old woman, uh, beloved of many students uh, uh, in Gaza. Uh, but she was strong-headed uh, and against uh, the advice of her uh, fellows who were sheltering there, she uh, wanted to go home. She just simply wanted to go home. And she proceeded to do that. Uh, a sniper shot her in the leg. And um, folks who were trying to rescue her were all being shot at, so she bled uh, to death. Uh, what could uh, a woman like that, 84-year-old uh, woman, uh, have uh, done to hurt uh, uh, Israelis? Or um... So, you know, this is a continuing saga. Um, now the uh, the uh, the vast majority are sheltering in the uh, Church of the Holy Family, and as you said, uh, the uh, the snipers have uh, shot uh, two um, other elderly, uh, well, uh, Nahida, an elderly woman, and her daughter came to carry her, and she was shot and killed, and seven others were. Um, um, also injured. Um, I have a relative by the name of Philip Jashan. Um, actually, my fa family originally was Jashan. Uh, Philip Jashan is the only uh, Gazan whom I'm able to reach uh, by through social media. He's sheltering there. I, you know, for four days, uh, I, I was worried about him and tried to reach him, but uh, communications was shut down. Uh, finally, no. uh, I was able to, he, he told me that he uh, was okay, but uh, like you said, they have no uh, food, and as you know, Israel has used um, water and uh, food and electricity uh, as part of its genocidal war. There's no other name for it. Philip, we want to continue this conversation after the broadcast, and we're going to post it online. Philip Farah is co-founder of the Palestinian Christian Alliance for Peace, has relatives sheltering in the Church of St. Pophidius in Gaza City, uh, which was bombed uh, by the Israeli military. Pophidius is thought to be the third oldest church in the world. Uh, last month, his family member, Elham Farah, was killed by an Israeli sniper outside the Holy Family Church, where she had been taking refuge. Next up, Texas Republican Governor Greg Abbott has signed one of the nation's most extreme anti-immigrant bills, empowering local police to arrest anyone they suspect of entering the United States without authorization. Back in 20 seconds. Mm -hmm. 
Music by the Mexican band Mint Fueled. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Senate leaders say President Biden will have to wait until next year to negotiate a deal with Republicans on immigration as part of an emergency funding package for Ukraine and Israel and Taiwan and more. Meanwhile, Donald Trump, the leading Republican candidate in next year's presidential race, doubled down on his hateful comments about immigrants at a campaign event a Tuesday in Iowa when he paraphrased the Nazi dictator Adolf Hitler as he spoke between two Christmas trees. It's crazy what's going on. They're ruining our country. And it's true. They're destroying the blood of our country. That's what they're doing. They're destroying our country. They don't like it when I said that. And I never read Mein Kampf. Hitler used the phrase blood poisoning in Mein Kampf to argue German blood was being, quote, poisoned by Jews. Trump drew outrage for similar comments at a rally Saturday in New Hampshire. This comes as Texas Governor Greg Abbott, major Trump supporter, approved a sweeping new law, just signed it into law, that allows police to arrest anyone they suspect to have entered the U.S. without authorization. For more, we're joined by Marissa Limon Garza, executive director of Las Americas uh, Immigrant Advocate. Center, which is part of the lawsuit to stop the new Texas law from going into effect in March. Her op-ed for The Messenger is headlined, The Senate Shouldn't Treat Migrants as Bargaining Chips. Uh, Marissa, welcome back to Democracy Now! Let's start with um, the law that the governor signed um, in the last few days, the significance of what this means and why even local police chiefs are against this in Texas. So Senate Bill 4 here in the state of Texas is part of legislation that the governor has been pushing since the regular session. This was just the end of the fourth special session, specifically to push on school vouchers, public education, as well as on this anti-immigrant racist policy. This is built off of the knowledge of what happened with Arizona and SB 1070, the show me your papers law there. And it finds it's a little more slippery. It finds loopholes that are able to make it so that any peace officer anywhere in the state of Texas, not just along the southern border, but anywhere, um, and very loosely defined, if this peace officer has probable cause, they can make the determination that if a person has not crossed into Texas from Mexico at an official U.S. port of entry, they can then be detained, jailed, and even deported. Obviously, this is the jurisdiction of the federal government, which is why we're calling on the Department of Justice to immediately get involved. And yes, Las Americas, along with American Gateways, our partners at the El Paso County and the ACLU are in litigation against SB4 and its rollout. And Marisa, you've written that your office had received a staggering number of calls, up to 7,000 a day from asylum seekers in Ciudad Juarez. Uh, what? How do you see the situation now, especially those Americans who say that the uh, that the situation at the border is uh, 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 is completely out of control? So I just like to paint a picture. You know, the reality at the southern border is we have been seeing a small piece of what is global migration. So this phenomenon is 110 million people forcibly displaced across the globe, according to UN statistics for the month of September. And so this is just one pedacito of that reality. It's important also to recognize that the state of Texas is, in fact, you know, a multiracial democracy. It just happens to be one that is severely oppressed. And this attempt at, at erasure really makes things 
a lot more complicated. We have to take that into context along with the reality that Texas has very lax gun laws, the reality that Texas does not um, really make it easy for people to vote, does not provide a quality education for the young people of this state. We're focused on banning books. We're focusing on eliminating diversity, equity, inclusion at public universities. So it's basically the silencing and the erasure of a people. And that uh, cannot go uncontested. And if we, again, zoom out, we know that this global migration, and specifically the people that we're seeing along the U.S.-Mexico border, reflect global migration, but it also reflects U.S. involvement around the globe, but particularly in Central and South America, whether it's destabilization during the Obama administration, whether it's further back, there are U.S. fingerprints all over the migrants that we see at the southern border. Our work is to accompany. So we do that uh, as folks reach out to us, whether it's from Tapachula, Querétaro, Mexico City, to Ciudad Juarez. We accompany people across the port. And then we accompany people in the U.S. detention settings, as well as in our community. And we like to do as warm handoffs as possible to folks in the interior. And it's important to recognize that actually USCIS is doing a phenomenal job of a new program where they're co-locating with us at the southern border in San Diego, El Paso, and Brownsville to make sure that people, migrants who use CBP-1, the application that this administration has put forward as the tool that should be used, if they come through that app and they come to one of the shelters that's offering the service, they will be able to leave our community with a work authorization. That means that when they get to Chicago, New York, LA, wherever, they will rely much less on the social safety nets of those communities and will begin to have a dignified life as they go through their asylum claims. And, and we have about a minute left, but could you talk about the, the, the response of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus to the, uh, the Biden administration, uh, basically not even consulting them in terms of its decisions on negotiations or for another $14 billion in, in border security money that the president is requesting? Yes, um, we were all duped. You know, we've been involved in conversations with the Biden administration since they were the transition team. I personally have hosted Secretary Mayorkas in our office. I sat next to the vice president when she was here. Our local bishop welcomed President Biden and spent several minutes with him in private. They know our reality. And they know that these leaders of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus represent us. And they're not being quiet. They're being quite loud. And the fact that they're not even being given the respect of a seat at the table is a further slap in the face of everything that we're trying to accomplish and the representation that we have. None of the Senate negotiators are people of color. The one senator who is a person from a borderland state is Kristen Sinema from Arizona. She does not live near the border. Our two senators here in Texas, Ted Cruz and Senator Cornyn, do not have offices in El Paso. If you go to their website, it says contact us. But they have them everywhere else. And so it's very clear that we are under attack. It's very clear from the language of the previous president and from our governor, who's interested in being his running mate, that we have targets on our backs. And we in El Paso, along with people in Uvalde and all across the country, know that when you mix that kind of rhetoric with gun laws that we have and policies and laws like SB4, it's a very dangerous cocktail. Marissa Limon Garza, we want to thank you so much for being with us, Executive Director of Las Americas Immigrant Advocacy Center. We're going to link to your piece in The Messenger, The Senate Shouldn't Treat Migrants as Bargaining Chips. 
That does it for our show. Democracy Now! is produced with Mike Burke, Renee Feldstein, Aguster, Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Sheikh, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warrenoff, Trina Nadura, Sam Alcoff, Tamari Studio, John Hamilton, Robbie Karen. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez.